Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Thanks, Travis. So it's not my intent this morning to do this like long exegetical look at Jesus' temptation. I, the older I get, the more I love that story because it, it, it seems to capture Jesus' living life as we experience it, which is, it's hard. And even your best intentions come with a lot of resistance. And whether you're someone that believes in an intelligent evil or not, there's just a ton of resistance. And, and the question that I want to really get into this morning, that I, for me this is kind of the jumping off for, is this question of, next slide, how, how, how do we become the kinds of people who do the right thing even when it's difficult? What I didn't know was over the course of life, like what this refers to will change. I mean, some of you might be in this season where, you have the advantage of youth and energy and all these things, and so there's this temptation everywhere for you. Maybe you're in a, in a business field where the potential to be dishonest is everywhere. Maybe you're recovering from an addiction, whether it be substances or some kind of sexual addiction, and it's just hard to stay the course. Maybe you have little kids at home, and as much as you love them, patience is such an incredible, incredibly difficult thing, or maybe you have teenagers and you had no idea how expensive they would be, and it's hard to combine how expensive they are with just the need for persistence and patience. Those things I, I think I've experienced, we've all seen coming. It's also possible that what you're experiencing in the, in the, the need for strength dis, despite its difficulty is you're watching friends who are sick and family members who are sick and it just strikes me that we're, we as a community together are in this unique and maybe new season where suddenly we're getting old enough that we're watching friends move towards death and that creates a different kind of emotional difficulty. Uh, what I want to get into is this question and the jumping off point for me is, you know, in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I think my favorite book ever is, even though it's such a hard read, is Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy. My friend Mark says that in hell you have to diagram Dallas Willard's sentences so it's not a particularly easy read. He loves long run-on sentences. It's really a commentary on Jesus' longest recorded sermon in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of that sermon, you may have some familiarity. There's this statement Jesus makes where he kind of sums it all up by saying, therefore, build your house on the rock so that when the winds and the rains and the storms come, your house will stand. And Dallas Willard's paraphrase of that is always stuck with me. He says, the promise is Jesus can give you the kind of life that can withstand all of life's storms. And I think the brilliance of that for me is you don't necessarily know which ones are coming. We all have some idea, but you don't necessarily even know what to prepare for. 
And yet there's this, there's this promise uh, that Jesus can give us the kind of character, the kind of emotional strength, the kind of mental game that'll make us able to do hard things. Uh, some of you may remember we did this series back in the fall. Well, I guess I jumped ahead there. Hold off on that. We're in this series, for those of you who are guests, uh, just to kind of catch you up, we're in this series called, uh, like, simply put, What is a Christian? And really, we started this in January because part of the observation that I've made over the last year, and we've all made, is that, man, we Christians have done a great job of creating a really confusing message. There's so many churches and so many claims to Christian truth and so many ideas and so many authorities that I genuinely kind of grieve for the person who really is kind of trying to turn to God, but then there's this like arbitrary like who. And so part of what we're trying to do, I hope with humility, is go, okay, so, so what is it? Like, what, what is a Christian? And I love the way C.S. Lewis says at the start of the book, we do far better to say you're a good one or a bad one than you are one or you aren't one. If someone claims to be one, like, let's just get better at going, like, that's not what that's supposed to mean. But we've, we've used, for the kind of the backdrop of this book, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, which is somewhat arbitrary, and it's certainly my call. It's a book that was written in 1952. Before that, it was a series of lectures that C.S. Lewis gave on the BBC. The design of it was to just answer this question 70-some years ago of, like, okay, so what, what's the backbone? What's, if you boil it all down, like, simply put... What is a Christian? And that was the goal, that, that was the desire. And what we've been exploring is, well, first and foremost, God is triune, which isn't just a theological construct. It means that God's relational, which may explain why you have this like, need for relationship even though there's some of life's greatest pains. I was actually listening to this lecture on a podcast stream called Veritas that I'm really starting to like, and it was two people debating, based upon their own expertise, the merits of whether we should talk more or less about death. And one of the people said, uh, in referencing Canada, which I don't know how long ago it was, but can Canada legalized doctor-assisted suicide, and she said in 2022, what we know, because apparently you have to apply for that, and there, it's documented what your reason for wanting to do doctor-assisted suicide was, and in 2022, over 1,700 people, their stated medical reason was loneliness. There was almost another 500 that stated medical reason was they had some kind of physical disability that they would be fine to live with, but they don't have a person to help them live with it. And I think that speaks a little to this, like, we are made for relationship. It's what we explored last week is, like, the end game goal is union with God. And then in between, we looked at this, like, okay, so what is a Christian in the forgiveness sense? And what I love about that is whether you're someone that believes in an objective moral truth or you're someone that thinks like we all form our own truth, the great news is, is whether you receive one from outside yourself or this afternoon, I mean, here would be the challenge. I had a friend challenge me this 20 years ago. Just sit down and write down your moral code. Sometimes we call it a, a New Year's Eve resolution, but just sit down and write like, here's the code I'm gonna follow and just count how many days it takes before you break it. So whether it comes external or internal, there's this human tendency that's incapable of doing the things that we determine to be right. And C.S. Lewis tackles that and says, that's where this idea of forgiveness and the cross comes from within the story. But where we get to this week, and if you're doing a book small group, where you're getting to is the reading around Christian morality, which is a broad topic. It's certainly broader in the book than we can handle on a Sunday morning. But that's what gets me asking this question of like, how do we become the kinds of people who do the difficult thing? Because what Jesus exhibits in the wilderness is a moral ethos that in the face of like literally the worst temptation, 
stayed the course? Well, one of the questions that I found myself asking uh, took me all the way back to 2022. Next, we can go to that next slide. We, we did this series called Your Mental Game. Some of you may remember this series in the fall of 2022. The inspiration for the series was we were coming out of COVID and some of you may remember like this, the, the mental health crises that we were in and in many ways still are. There was rampant loneliness and Suddenly everybody had depression and anxiety and all of these things. And part of what we tried to do in that series was first validate the Travis who read earlier, like he's a therapist, validate the therapists and the scientists and the doctors and all of that world, while at the same time, hence the back to the basics, saying, okay, even if we allow that all those, if in fact we allow all those things are helpful, what's the low-hanging fruit that like most humans across most history understood, contributed to their mental health that maybe we're taking for granted. And we explored community. Uh, Dr. Brandon Bilyeu talk, talked about nutrition and, and, and how, how we eat and sleep and exercise affects our health. Well, one of the questions that I asked, and this was like the, probably the closest thing for me within this study, and it, of course, I asked it before I knew we were gonna do a series, that tends to be the way we do things, was this question that I asked myself of what if, especially in an age where we're talking about anxiety agnosium, what if courage, I asked myself, is a, is a cardinal virtue? Now, ironically, I didn't know that cardinal virtue was like actually a proper noun that has its own like sophisticated history. I obviously had some familiarity with the construct. I was just asking the question like, what if it's really important? And I was asking it from this context of Jesus in the gospel, his most repeated command is fear not. And so what I was trying to reconcile with my own quote unquote anxiety story is, is where's the intersection between this as a mental condition for myself and this as just a like, sometimes humans have to do scary crap. And how do I like mediate those two things? How do we hold those things in, in healthy tension? Uh, Rebecca Lyons, who you'll hear from if you do the Think Gathering with us, uh, she says, who herself has her own anxiety history, she says, I came to realize that anxiety was a fancy word that I applied to this thing that most people simply called fear. So, cardinal virtue. It's a big section of C.S. Lewis's book, which gets me to this question. Sorry for the elongated introduction, but here's really the question I wanna ask. Next slide. What are the cardinal virtues and how might they help us become the kinds of people who do the right thing even when it's difficult? Now, I don't know, maybe you're educated in the cardinal virtues, maybe not, maybe you're familiar with, maybe you hear this thing called throwing around right now that's such a growing thing, it's called classic education, it's a big piece of that. Again, when I asked the question cardinal virtues, I didn't know there was such a thing, but there are. They go all the way back to the classic philosophers. They don't even originally start with Jesus or Christianity. Cardinal there doesn't refer to the birds on the bat or on the football helmet. It's actually a, a word that means hinge. And so the image is just awesome, I think, that a cardinal virtue is like a door hinge. There's four of them in this case. And probably you've had a door with a wonky hinge before, whether it be on a car or a house, or, or maybe you thought, I can hang a door, and then you did, and you went like, that's a disaster. A, a door without a functioning hinge, it doesn't work. And that's the image here, is like, what are the, what are the keystone moral principles that like everything else hangs on? Well, little did I know, courage is one of them, and C.S. Lewis tackles that. So here's what I want to do this morning is this might be a little more academic than we normally shoot for, but for me, it's been really helpful to just memorize the virtues, 
gained some education. I've studied them quite a bit now and read a bunch of stuff on them, but I'm still very much a learner on this one. But what I've found is, I don't know if you've ever memorized a verse or maybe a therapist gave you a mantra. And even though when you start doing that, you say like, if I could just say this for the rest of my life, I'd always do the right thing. What happens is you forget about it. But as I understand it, the discipline of, say, memorizing a verse, it's a, it's a testament of trust to God the Holy Spirit because part of what you're saying is, God, when I need this, I'm trusting that you'll help me recall it. And I actually uh, have talked to friends who are do- dealing with some like dementia-type stuff and they talk about, it's astounding. I struggle with lots of things, but these verses that I memorized 40 years ago, they're still clear. That's the invitation I think of the virtues, is to give yourself the category and the language to gain some understanding of them, and then as you parent, as you live, as you make moral choices, as you find yourself disagreeing with somebody else's moral choices, or even wondering, is it okay to disagree about moral choices? These things really have proven helpful for me, and I'm, again, I'm early in it. So, last bit of introduction. Uh, a podcast I put on the mind map, uh, which I see are gone. I'm sorry, I, I need to bring more of those. You can find it online. The one that I found most ha- helpful, next slide, he suggests that you think of the moral virtues, or excuse me, yeah, think of the cardinal virtues like the four points of a compass. Because there's really two sets of two, and each set of two is an opposite of the other. So like a good team, Good teams aren't comprised of four or ten people who have the same skills, but these kind of opposite skills that they can either wreck us or they make us great. That's the way these work. So let's go to the north. And again, it's arbitrary which one you put where, but at the further northern point, you would have fortitude. Now, what is fortitude? It's courage. It's an old word for courage. What is it? And this is where I love this definition of it. Uh, One person just says, Fortitude is the, the ability to not be controlled by fear. Which doesn't mean that fear is never good. Sometimes it functions well. But it's, the moral, it's, it's having the moral wisdom to go, in this case, to do this or not do this to be, would be out of cowardice and I'm not going to make a decision based upon that. I love 2 Timothy, where Timothy says this, next slide, for God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. I don't know if you think of yourself as naturally courageous. I certainly don't. No one's ever accused me of being an adrenaline junkie or a risk taker. What I love about this verse from Timothy is I think it's a confession. Like sometimes what you're dealing with is you're being a coward. And the confession is, I am one, but the spirit of God in me equips me for strength. And again, so for me, one of the categories that's been really helpful is just sometimes to go, the issue here is I want to do the easy thing and life doesn't always ask me to do easy things. But its opposite then is temperance. And what is temperance? Well, if if fortitude is the ability to not be controlled by fear, temperance is the ability to not be controlled by pleasure. And in the same way that fortitude is not saying that fear is never a good thing, temperance is not saying pleasure is never a good thing. There are schools of thought. Stoicism would would lean in that direction. No one's saying, uh, the, the cardinal virtues are not saying pleasure is never okay. There's lots of pleasures that God gave us. But it's the ability to discern is the chief issue here, I'm taking in too much pleasure. 
I'm giving pleasure too much of a priority in my life. I think one of the things that we have to deal with in our culture and the affluence that comes with it is, frankly, the reality that it's really easy to operate on the assumption that life is all about pleasure. And we hit a crisis when we realize, in this instance, it's not. I, I love the way Paul says this in Second excuse me, 1 Corinthians. Do not know that in a race all the runners compete but only one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable garland but we an imperishable one. So do not run aimlessly. I do not run aimlessly nor do I box as though beating the air but I punish my body and enslave it. That's pretty harsh language. So that after proclaiming to others I myself should not be disqualified. To me, it's sobering that the Apostle Paul entertained the idea that despite all of his work on the gospel's behalf, he could himself become disqualified. It's this understanding temperance that God made us for pleasure, and yet that requires wisdom. So then there's justice. And, and justice, you know, we could talk about this forever. It's such a central piece of the gospel, of who it, what it means to be Christian. The definition that helps me in the practicality is justice is doing right by others. Justice is recognizing that we're, we're not in, more, solid morality does not make decisions in a vacuum. It doesn't just ask, what do I want in this instance? Sometimes friendship is really inconvenient to our calendar or our plans. Sometimes the gospel is really inconvenient to our checkbooks and our financial priorities. So justice just stays open to God is a God who's always going to call me towards the other. Jesus, I think one of my favorite stories in the gospel. Next slide. When, when Jesus called to them, he said, you know, he's calling out Herod here, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man, so he's not asking us to do something he didn't do, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. That's justice. And opposite of justice, if justice is about doing right by others, then prudence, and I've heard different things, it's doing right by God, it's doing right by self. Prudence is the ability to discern wisdom. It's the ability to go, you know what, I, I don't know the answer, but I can spend some days seeking counsel, reading, seeking God, talking to wise people. We were talking this week in the Mere Christianity group that I'm a part of. Someone asked this great question, which is, if this is all so important, why isn't it more intuitive? And I don't know that I have a good answer for that. But it is. Like, we, we follow a long line of faith tradition that, that does not operate on the assumption that that which is intuitive is permissible. It operates on the assumption that sometimes the right thing comes as a result of seeking wisdom. Sometimes the right thing is the opposite of the thing that you want to do. We have a whole book in our Bible, 15 of the 17 times prudence shows up in the Old Testament, it shows up in the book of Proverbs. Let's just look at the first few verses. Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity. To teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young. 
So there they are. Maybe it's your first introduction. Maybe you're bored because you're an expert on them, for which I'm sorry. Maybe you need to grab me your Christianity because he expands upon them a little bit. But this is what I would throw out there. What if, in your quest to be the right kind of person, the kind that honors God, what if we don't have to reinvent the wheel? What if there's these really simple four words that if we just became more aware of them, then in the real-time present decision-making moments, we could find ourselves as individuals, as parents, as friends, going like, wait a minute, I I think what you're dealing with right here is fortitude. I think what you're discerning right now is, is this a time where you just need to go do the hard thing? I think what you're dealing with right now is is that you put too much hope in pleasure. Uh, I think it's Richard Foster who says addiction is largely a control issue because what addiction controls is its joy. Because if you know that for the split second that you get high or you become inebriated, you experience joy, just if, even if only initially, it's an attempt to control joy. Whereas lots of things, there's no guarantee that you'll have them and in other cases, you may never get them from doing that. It's just, it's about being courageous or about justice. Finally, there's this, and this was helpful for me as I was processing this. I was listening to someone this week who referenced the idea of swimming pools then and now. I I grew up in Laurel. We had a public swimming pool. I hated that place. Hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. I've always hated open water. It has this feeling of impending doom. But my sister loved it, and we spent some time there, and they didn't heat it either. It was always like 32 degrees in August. But it was a pool, but inside the fence were two pools that were separated by a fence. Because there was one pool that started at three feet, and I don't know if it went down to the deep end, where at one point there was a high dive, it was 12 or 14 feet. And then there was another pool that like, was separated from a pool by a fence, and the other pool was just full of urine. <laughs> we, it was called a, a baby pool. Largely considered unsanitary and not altogether pleasurable. But we don't do that anymore. Like, to the extent that a municipality builds a pool today, there are these zero-entry pools, where at one end, it's like a beach. I mean, there's this invisible point where there's, like, not water, and then there's, like, just a paper, you know, just a tiny bit. And then you just walk it out, and you go from none to an inch to a foot to four feet to 12 feet. And I think that's, that's a beautiful illustration of the invitation of God. And part of the challenge of being a community like this together Some of you are, quite frankly, you're still standing outside the water. And I sure hope that what you catch from us and me is we are so glad that you're here. And while I think our decisions matter and you don't have infinite time, God's not in a hurry. But I also would love it if what you understood is you're not choosing whether or not to like get your feet wet. Ultimately, you're making this much bigger eternal decision are humans eternal beings? And therefore, does, does who we become matter? And do you trust that this God made you and knows you and wants you and will use you and is the shepherd who will walk with you through all of life's storms? And again, we're thrilled that you're here. And others of you, this is the challenge. Like, we're all in different places in our faith journey. And that doesn't mean that we move closer and closer to certainty. In fact, I would say the opposite. The deeper it gets, the the less certainty there is. But my hope for you is that on whatever level you're in, these cardinal virtues could be this invitation where God, with the specificity of language, paints a picture for you of the type of person he would love 
to see you become. Now, this morning, we are gonna give you a chance to take communion, and that's something we do together every week, and I think, again, it's the pool analogy. If you're someone who's outside of faith and just looking in, we, we really didn't design this to kind of showcase who's not one. It's not about it at all. But I would also say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, like, skip it. It's really, it's not for you. I, I think to the extent that you ever do choose to follow Jesus, like, that'll be a really important moment, and we'll celebrate that with you. But just, just opt out. And I know it's awkward in this space, but no one's paying attention, I, I promise. And for others of you, this is, this is the story. It points to the history. Jesus' body broken, his blood poured out, what it means to be Christian. And we do that in memory. And then there's also this, for some of you, this invitation to to see it as this tangible reminder, not just of history, but of a God who dwells in us. This is what we talked about last week. That Christianity is not just based upon I believe this or I don't believe that or I do this or I don't do that. Like the absurd Christian claim is that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the spirit of God, when a person believes that, comes and like lives in you. And that to be Christian is to learn, as Paul says, to crucify the flesh and to continue like work with God to allow the life of God to flow out of you into your ordinary life. This is the divine conspiracy. A God who shows up in the world one person at a time, flowing through their hands and feet and eyes and ears and whatever relationships you have. So we invite you to take it. If you've not taken it with us before, we'll have bread over there and juice and wine over there. There's also a gluten-free option. We just ask you to hold it. We'll sing a couple songs and then jump back up here and uh, Travis and I will uh, lead you through it together. I'd like to pray as the band comes up. God, Lord, feels a little academic and yet maybe crucial as, as perhaps in this, uh, in this historical moment that we live in uh, that becomes more and more important that we develop the ability to have conviction but be kind with it, that maybe some of this language as parents and friends and community members, as Christians, can help us just, uh, frankly, just be more knowledgeable about what what is the moral decision we're making right now and, and which of those four hinges is it most related to. God, I pray in particular for parents, especially parents of young kids, that uh, we, we know that like there's a, there's a supplemental need that they have to bring that they won't otherwise get. And so would you make us, would you just bless their parenting uh, that they could not fulfill any of the cliches that show up on the news about what it means to be Christian but lead their kids into this like God-honoring, orthodox, generous, kind, committed faith. Pray for friends here, Lord, that are just contemplating all that and Lord, that whatever those relationships are that got them to this point that you'd, guide and lead them and those. And God, this is our practice. We gather to scatter. We gather to say, here's our life, our ordinary, everyday, messy, imperfect life. Would you send your spirit into us and us into the world? And God, we recognize that communion is, is a testament of this. Your body broken, your blood poured out, this desire you have to take up residence in us. So come Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.